0: Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband Rick travel throughout the land in their teardrop trailer that they have nicknamed Maggie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews.
1: Hi, this is Alara. Welcome back to our podcast. We talk about food in many of our podcasts, but it's usually from the beginning point of the plant or the animal itself and not the ending point at the table. Since last week we spoke with Camus Davis and we discussed the butchery end of the process, we thought it might be nice to bring you the chef's perspective. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, I can just go down to the local restaurant and ask to see the chef and ask him a few questions and that'll be the same thing. It may or may not be. If your chef at the local eatery orders from a regular available supplier and cooks the food and pops it on the table promptly, it's still not the same, unless he goes way past the norm, like our next guest. Being a chef is like anything else in life. Some people do the minimum necessary. Some people go above and beyond. And some people go to the point where they not only do the beyond part, but they include a philosophy of life, a view of the universe, ethical considerations and turn it all into art. You can both appreciate gastronomically and artistically. This is that guy. We're speaking today with Jonathan Perino, executive chef at Campo, the restaurant at Los Poblanos in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We've included some links on our podcast intro page, and I sincerely hope you take the time to visit their website to see this beautiful example of what agritourism can be. Lovely lodging, an organic farm and garden, a lavender farm for artisan products, an amazing restaurant, and a bar that has mixologists, not bartenders. I get happy, hungry, and sleepy just thinking of all those things, but in a good way. To describe Los Poblanos and Jonathan, I'm gonna read you excerpts from their website, as I can't encapsulate their goals any better than they do. This is Matthew Remby, Executive Director of Los Poblanos. Our entire team is engaged on issues of the land and sustainability. We dedicate a lot of time to supporting local nonprofits dedicated to food issues, water issues, education, historic preservation, tourism, and economic development. New Mexico is a state with so many needs, and we're in a unique position where we can add value to these conversations, as well as learn from them. We've hosted talks, tours, and other events to educate the public and raise awareness on sustainable practices. We educate our staff in-house and have them sent to organic farm conferences and sustainable practice seminars locally and nationally. We also work with local volunteers on our organic farm on a weekly basis during the growing and harvesting seasons. An executive chef, Jonathan Perno. A native New Mexican, Jonathan is now recognized as one of the leading chefs in the Southwest. He has been at Los Poblanos for over 10 years and with the Remby family, helped shape its vision of Rio Grande Valley cuisine. Jonathan has been nominated five times as a semi-finalist for a James Beard award and is a strong advocate of the farm-to-table philosophy. He is a butcher, farmer, beekeeper, and has trained many cooks to become great chefs, many who now run kitchens of their own. He collaborates with organizations locally and nationally that are dedicated to improving the quality of food, soil, and culinary technique. We met Jonathan through the kind introduction of Adam Danforth of The Shops Collaborative, The Butcher's Manifesto, and The Good Meat Project. Adam is another rock star in the world of butchery. After one or two rescheduling adventures for our original interview, due to the fires in Oregon and California, we felt as if we were stalking Adam a bit, but he suggested we meet up with him in Albuquerque in November of 2018, where he was leading hands-on workshops in one of the unknown food capitals of the United States. I sure didn't know it, but Albuquerque has quite the farm-to-table reputation. One of those workshops was held at Los Poblanos, and one of those amazing chefs was Jonathan Perna. This was one of those few times where Rick had to take the lead on the interview, as I only had one day in Albuquerque. I was there with him for only part of that trip before I had to head home. I hit the Mangalitsa pig farm on a beautiful fall day, and a CTLR Longhorn interview with Debbie Davis at the Quivera Coalition Grass-Fed Alliance Convention. Rick then stayed for the butchery part, including a very respectfully conducted humane slaughter demonstration on site, a whole animal butchery class, and then dinner afterwards. So you'll hear Rick asking the questions on this one instead of me. And yes, I still feel intensely guilty about the scheduling requirements on that one. Rick said it gives a difficult but really important appreciation for what it takes to bring food to our plates, but that's a story for another day. I comfort myself that he had the chance to speak with Jonathan at Los Poblanos and taste the bounty of all the work that came before. We'd like to thank Jonathan Perno for his graciously given time, Adam Danforth for the introduction, and the sheep for giving its all. And I mean that sincerely on all counts.
2: Uh, my name is Jonathan Perno, and I'm the executive chef of Los Poblanos in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
0: Tell me a little bit about yourself. How you got into being a chef, going to culinary? Um,
2: let's see. I'm originally from Albuquerque, um, and then I worked with a chef in the city, and he came out of the Culinary Academy in San Francisco. So he and I got talking, and I went and visited the school. And then I, when I was 19, I ended up packing up my bags and heading west. <laughs> And then I went to school, and then my first job there was with um, Wolfgang Puck's post-trio. And then I was a part of the prep team, and then they put me in the butcher department. And then after probably the first couple months, I took over the butchering lead. And I did that for a year and a half for Wolfgang's Kitchen there and trained all the butchers that were after me.
0: Tell me about your current position here and a little bit about... uh how
2: should
0: I say, at the restaurant,
2: the facility, mm-hmm. the farm, so to speak? Well, I'm, I've been the only chef on the property now 11 years, um, and it was really small, and we've kind of grown into where we're at now. And the whole philosophy, myself as well as my employer, was you know, sustainable, um, community, um, farm-to-table, that term, and just seasonal. And so all that training that I started when I was in the Bay Area and wherever my travels took me, everyone I worked for, the main focus was source locally, build relationships with your local purveyors, go see their facilities to understand their practices, to make sure that they're, you know, they're walking their talk. And because my chefs were very adamant about if they said they were doing something, they definitely did it. They just didn't use it as a, 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 a ploy to create business or a buzz. Because when I was studying, organics really wasn't discussed too much. You just knew that reputable producers, either if it be for vegetable or, 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 or meat, that they would have to have healthy practices to do business with these chefs that were up and coming and established within these cities that I worked in and none of them cut corners and you know they sourced egg farmers and poultry farmers and lamb and I mean at post Postrio we used to go through like 18 lamb a week whole carcasses and that whole animal was used all the way through on the menus and breakfast lunch and dinner so that's kind of where I got my foundation and my my mindset of how we work in this kitchen now and so it's just been, I've been living and, and breathing this way for 30 years of my adult life.
0: So early on, you got into the whole animal butchery yeah, concept because, of Yeah, because, oh yeah,
2: I, I, I embraced it. I was 19 when I went, and I was kind of, you know, coming from here and then going to San Francisco. That's an intimidating move for a young man trying to make it in the culinary world, or a young woman, anybody. I mean, there was, at that time in the late oh, 80s, right. 90s, San Francisco was producing a lot of really great chefs and a lot of good restaurants, and I just happened to land in one of them. And then from that point, I just kept moving in and out of them. Um, but again, the main focus was was fresh, manage your product, don't buy more than you need, use it up, uh, know how to use all your byproducts, whatever the byproduct may be, if it's coming from vegetable or animal, again. And I think that's where a lot of people get lost. They they. Create dishes, and they see one thing; they don't see all the other facets of what can manifest out of a whole animal or or a whole onion. You know, there's a lot more diversity than what most people allow themselves to to embrace with food.
0: So, in your career and and here as well, um, you guys use the whole animal and use all the different products. And you talk about
2: that a little bit. We do. Um, Right now, we're just developing. We're getting. more infrastructure in place so that we can take on more of the whole animal concept in the beginning we weren't um, built out in a, in a way that we could uh, be sustainable in that world so these have all been very small deliberate steps getting us to this point and now we're in a point where we're going to be start looking at we have someone that wants us to buy whole hogs from them. I'm in the middle of negotiating uh, with some gentlemen that are raising beef. And it's, uh, the beef is half uh, Wagyu and half uh, Black Angus breed. And so we just started working with some of their meats um, that they gave us to sample to make sure that we want to work with them and we like their product. And then once we get to that point, then we're going to negotiate bringing in uh, half side steers in and then breaking them down. Um, you know, from curing to drying, um, we're doing a, a dinner on in December, like the second week of December here, and we we're going to dry air dry beef, and then we're going to store it, and then we're going to cook it with hominy. And this is this idea came from a lady that was um, came from the Sioux Nation, and this is a dish that they would create, and she was talking to us about it, and so we kind of embraced her heritage and so we're going to create this dish and, and do it on this it's called saving the seasons so we're going to put all this meat up and dry and then we're going to make a stew out of it and reconstitute it back into like hominy so the hominy is a local corn that they would grow um, for either milling into flour or just cooking and eating it as like a like a grain um, and then you know the tails the ears the the neck i think is the best part of the animal pretty much off of any mammal There's a lot of connective tissue and and stuff going on there and it just, it stays so moist even after maybe uh, an extended period of cooking, so it just gets better and better. So, and then the shanks, I was watching this one program and I thought it was really interesting because they took the the shank of the steer um, and these were pretty big. I mean, the thing was this big and it would braise for overnight for like 16 hours and then the next day that's when they would serve it so every night they would be cooking for the next day with these huge steer shanks and they would put them in a wood burning oven close it off and then they'd put them in these huge metal pots and it was like oh my gosh this is like amazing because most osobuco you know they tend to be off of a smaller animal so I was kind of impressed when I saw that that large steer shank being used and probably the flavor was more robust too I would I would assume Um, but we try to use everything we process all our own fat here I've never bought fat for for making of confit or or uh, poaching something in like we save tallow we save all the chicken fat we save all our bacon fats and we we process and clean them and I was fortunate enough to work with a guy that taught me how to process fat into uh, rendered fat so I was fortunate there. Then, you know, the stomach lining, the, uh, all of the, the fat on the pig where the kidneys are, that's like the best fat on the animal. And so we take that and we, we keep that separate from the other fats, and then we use that into making tamales or m- m- dough for empanadas because it's just so rich and flavorful. Some people, you know, there's a lot of vegan vegetarians now, so we move around that. But when we have the opportunity to use these fats for clients that or don't have food concerns then uh we get more excited in the kitchen because we get to work with the product the way it was intended to be worked with instead of like okay we got to change this because of this concern for an individual Um, and then we're taking the skins and we've made uh, uh, pork rinds out of them i mean just you know comb feeding the hearts and patties with the liver um we don't clean our own intestines for sausage. That's a that that's a whole other level of commitment. I think to harvesting the animals, but I I believe if we do, we're going to try to raise pigs here to, to help us uh, manage compost. So we want to raise these animals here, like two a year, and then slaughter them here on the property and then do a matanza just for the employees of the property because USD standards don't allow us to turn it around for retail sale. So we would do all the more traditional butchering instead of using the, 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 the pellet gun or the, the bullet to take down the animal. We'll, we'll slice its throat. And there's a, we have an Italian guy here. And he told us in, when he was growing up, his grandfather used to take like a long metal spear that was round, and they would stab it through the chest and pierce the heart pull it out and then they would slice the main artery going through the neck to bleed it out and it was he said one of the most humane the animal was it was stunned but it wasn't traumatized at the same time and I think going through the process of taking a life you have to go through the process of all respecting the life before you take the life
0: and it also going back with the trauma which when an animal has trauma you you see it in the meat
2: correct especially in 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 um, um pork okay it spots you get these like little blood clots throughout the meat and you can tell that 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 particular animal was stressed at some point through either the transport to the slaughterhouse or during when they're on the kill floor i mean it's just really interesting
0: so i wanted to go back a little bit too because you talked about the neck meat mm-hmm. and uh so that's usually um a cut or a piece of the animal that
2: nobody sees
0: nobody sees or Mm-mm. nobody even thinks about uh, i know i'm from virginia originally mm-hmm. and up there they do hog jaw bacon
2: oh yeah the yeah the guanciale absolutely
0: yeah. and so the first time i mentioned it to my wife that grew up in mm-hmm. san diego she never heard of
2: it oh it's so flavorful yeah. it's got more flavor than the than the belly part yeah. absolutely absolutely
0: so let me ask you um as the head chef here you um I assume that you work close with the farmers. As I a- do.
2: We work with about six different produce farmers, and we work with a couple. Right now, the beef one's going to be a new provider for us because we haven't solidified that deal. So, But right now, we work with the co-op distribution center, which is a um, community-owned store, and then they have a distribution center, and they source all my beef, and it's a Native American project that... Um, they got hooked up with, and it's all range-fed, and then they finish it on grain that the, the tribes um, grow as well. And then they feed them the grain for like two or three weeks, and then they go to slaughter. So right now we're leaning on that aspect until we get to the whole animal program. And then the other one, which is really cool, and we've been, I've been working with this man for as long as I've been here, and his name is Antonio Manzanadas, and his company, he and his wife, run a business called Shepherd's Lamb. And they're up north near Theon Maria, near, um, right there on the Colorado border. And then all his lamb are really old. Um, it's, an, it's an old breed, and it's called a churro lamb. So it's got long fur, and then his wife harvests the, the coats. They make yarn out of it. They, do, they use natural dyes to dye it. We sell it in the farm shop. And so we're, um, his lamb is like some of the best lamb in the world. I've had lamb all over, and he, and it's all grass-fed up in those high plateaus, and supposedly, I guess, at that elevation in this particular strain of grass, it's really high in beta carotene, so that helps do what corn would do for beef. It helps develop the marbling within the meat, and I can say this guy, he's he's an old-school Hispanic rancher, and he's been doing this for a really, really long time, and he's the one that turned me on. To getting the neck because i said well what about neck meat because i was just doing a lot of research on it and he goes well i i sell all my neck meat to a lady that makes dog food and i'm like dog food i'm like are you kidding me he goes yeah he goes why do you want it and i said i'll take every bit of it and so he weaned her off of him and now every neck when he harvests his lamb he stockpiles them and then i buy them all from him and and hopefully i can get into a position where we're buying whole carcasses from him um, pretty consistently that's the idea
0: so now the sheep did you say it was a churro
2: churro and then he also raises the more conventional white uh i don't know the breed name but it's the more traditional um lamb that yeah. you would see
0: so the the churro is what they make the blankets with correct yeah okay so that is a heritage breed so you mm-hmm. do uh work with
2: mm-hmm. heritage
0: breed here with as far as your lamb goes. Mm-hmm.
2: and the hogs there's a lot of people there's some people um that are trying to get me in contact with uh the woolly pigs the mangalistas. And there's another breed. I forget it. But there's two different producers that are working um, heritage breed hogs. And so we're going to look at that, especially in the charcuterie world, because, again, they don't grow as fast. They don't get as big as the conventional standard American Tyson bred hog. But I would rather have a smaller yield and end up with a, a better product. Because my whole belief system, and it doesn't matter who's producing something, is to know these people, build these relationships. That's why I don't have 20, 30 of them. I kind of keep my relationships smaller because it's easier to either maintain them or lose them, one or the other, depending on how invested you are in the relationship. So we really, and I teach my team that we really invest in these individuals and we really respect who they are and what they're doing. Because if it wasn't for these people and their investment and their integrity to what they do, we wouldn't be able to do what we do in the kitchen. And, and the whole idea is to take what they've started and continue to move that needle forward. It's not like, okay, here you go, chef. Now you start all over and make your own way with this. It's I want to promote them as much as we're promoting this place and, and showing that, that we... we we, one, support the community, and two, we have a relationship with these people, and if it wasn't for that relationship, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing.
0: Well, it's the same thing as uh, the farmer's aspect. They're a small farmer, and mm-hmm. they're, they're raising whatever particular animal or animals they're raising, mm-hmm. but they're not raising 1,500. To or, feed the world. Right.
2: No, they're, they're, they're raising enough to take care of a, whatever a community is within their scope.
0: So you're talking about the other pigs that you're looking into a farm, and would that be?
2: Um, uh, One is Taliswin, and he's up in there, the eastern part of the state.
0: We, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, when when we were talking about butchers, and you were saying how different it was being in England, I believe. Yeah, I think, London, yeah. Versus uh,
2: here. see. Here, you know. <laughs> here. It's a grocery store. There it was a butcher. You wanted meat, you go to the butcher. You wanted bread, you go to the bread store. You wanted cheese, you went to the fromage store. You know, and I think that, I don't know why we haven't embraced more of that as we've become older as a country and just as a a society in the U.S., but I think that it seems like the tides are turning very slowly back to that process and people realizing that they don't want a lot of ingredients in their food. They want the least amount of ingredients in their food and they want to know where it's coming from and they want to know who's producing it and what's being done to it. Um, And I think that's just a a, a good consciousness that's starting to get even bigger. And I think those are the things that are going to change the way, not just the way the consumer looks and, and buys and eats food, but I think it's really going to change in the way the... Industry looks and buys and prepares food. You know they're going to go away from it because a lot of these broadliners tell you, "Oh, we'll we'll cut you a perfect ten ounce steak every time," and na 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 na, and then yeah, but you get none of the byproduct, you get none of the bones, you get an inflated price, and you get something that's sometimes pumped with water or uh, s- brines just to pres- for preserving techniques, and it's just not what i've invested in and it's not what i was trained ever which was really good for me i was i felt very fortunate when i went to go and learn to be a chef because i was just in a space where i was surrounded by these people that have this mindset and they've always had this mindset and i find it interesting and it's not a bad thing when you you see new restaurants and new chefs coming on the scene and they're all clamming to get this stuff but they somewhat struggle at it because they just ha- it hasn't been so constant in their, in their cycle of their profession. And I was lucky to have it everywhere I went, where things were used, just like I worked in Alaska and uh, just to see if I could handle living in the bush and seeing if I wanted to live out there as, as a single person, like in the winter and be a caretaker. And, um, we were 70 miles away from civilization on, the, on a river and you had to be resourceful and you had to use all your product and you couldn't be careless, you know, because that's food and that's waste and so, you know, it's a big contributor, you know, you got to feed people, you can't produce, you can't, you got to make the smallest carbon footprint, so, I mean, all those things play into it.
1: If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going. And please tell your friends to join us. Please feel free to post any questions or comments that you might have to our social media sites. Our Twitter feed is at Backyard Green Films, spelled B-K-Y-R-D-G-R-E-E-N-F-I-L-M-S. Our Instagram is at Backyard Green Films. B-A-C-K-Y-A-R-D-G-R-E-E-N-F-I-L-M-S Our Facebook is Backyard Green Films. Our YouTube URL is YouTube.com Backyard Green Films.
0: We'd like to thank Chef Jonathan Perno for sitting down with us when we were in Albuquerque. If you'd like to find out more about Jonathan, or the Historic Inn and Farm at Los Poblanos, please visit lospoblanos.com. That is spelled L-O-S-P-O-B-L-A-N-O-S. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. We also suggest that you check out these other organizations, the Chefs Collaborative.org and the Coferra Coalition.org. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films, all rights reserved, copyright 2020.